Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. All right. From Penn Today, we've got a new health sciences report out. Microbes that can cause cavities can form superorganisms able to crawl and spread on teeth. Wow. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, here where we're recording, Halloween is just around the corner. And yes, we all know the dangers of sugar. But if you really want to encourage good brushing habits, maybe drop a little bit of this science to your little ones because <laughs> these multicellular cross-kingdom assemblages were more resistant to antimicrobials and removal and caused more extensive tooth decay than their single-species equivalents. This is some new research led by the School of Dental Medicine Scientists, and it is as scary as it sounds. It's a cross-kingdom partnership between bacteria and fungi. Wow. They basically Voltron together and create a superorganism with unusual strength and resilience. And yeah, it kind of sounds a little sci-fi, but they exist right here now. <laughs> yeah, that's unusual because bacteria and fungus are normally enemies. Like, that's way scarier right. if they're crossing. Yeah, they're joining forces. But what is that phrase we've been hearing for a few years now? These unprecedented times. Right. <laughs> right. Well, initially, these were found in the saliva of toddlers with severe childhood tooth decay. And mm. these assemblages can effectively colonize teeth. They were stickier. They were more resistant to antimicrobials and more difficult to remove from the teeth just physically than either bacteria or fungi alone. Mm. And not only that, <laughs> these assemblages unexpectedly sprout limbs what? Quotes, that propel them to walk and leap, also in quotes, to quickly spread on the tooth surface, despite each microbe on its own being non-motile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So this all started with a very simple, almost accidental discovery while looking at saliva samples from toddlers who developed this aggressive tooth decay. This is from Hyun Michael Koo, a professor at Penn. Quote, it's almost like a new organism with new functions. All right. So... <laughs> so in the past, Ku's lab has focused on the dental biofilm, or what we know as plaque, hmm. present in children with severe tooth decay. After seeing the bacteriofungal clusters present in the saliva samples, they were curious how the groupings might behave once they were actually on the surface of a tooth. So they began a series of experiments using real-time live microscopy to observe the process of attachment and eventual growth. But it was these leaping-like and walking-like motions while continuously growing that intrigued them the most. And differing from any known microbial motility, the assemblages used the fungal hyphae 
to anchor on the surface and then propel the whole superorganism forward, kind of like hitchhiking on the fungi. Mm -hmm. And these groupings, they moved hella far and hella fast. So on the tooth-like surface, the scientists observed the assemblages leaping over 100 microns across the surface. That's more than 200 times their own body length, which wow. makes them even better than most vertebrates relative to body <laughs> size. For example, if you think about a tree frog or a grasshopper, they can leap forward about 50 and 20 times their own body length, respectively. Mm -hmm. This, like, new goober we're talking about, more than 100 wow. microns, wow. more than 200 times their own body length. And the consequence is clear. It enables them to quickly colonize and spread to new surfaces. So this discovery of a, quote, bad guy superorganism, it's super groundbreaking. And hopefully we can figure out how to uh, make sure they don't take over our mouths and leave them horrible and disgusting. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that gets me is that neither one of these things could move before on their own. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. you hopped on the back of an elephant and suddenly the elephant's ears could allow it to fly. Like, it doesn't make any sense that they, by joining together, somehow they're able to do something neither of them could do before. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Is It's, it's yeah. absolutely insane. Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, this is coming out around this time because I've been dealing with uh, some teeth stuff of my own. So this oh, no. is freaky. You know, just getting some dental work done. But one of the things I've been learning about doing research is the new idea, actually, of, you know, similar to how the gut has a microbiome, mm -hmm. the mouth mm -hmm. also has a microbiome. And there are actually oral probiotics you can buy now you just mm -hmm. let them dissolve on the tongue and they balance oh. out the the microbiome yeah maybe it's the fecal transplants of the oh, future that somehow oh. <laughs> you just you need to kiss somebody with really good mouth bacteria is what needs to happen you just gotta like you know what that sounds way better than a fecal <laughs> <Yeah>. transplant <laughs> next link next link this article comes to us from bbc.com and it's titled the emojis of the 19th century Oh, okay. That's a little tongue in cheek. What they're really talking about is flowers. Oh, ah. Flowers have a long standing tradition as a means of emotional expression. Floreography, a coded <laughs> means of communication more commonly referred to as the language of flowers, dominated Victorian culture in England and the US, and despite being largely forgotten for decades, is steadily gaining popularity once more. One of the prominent examples of recent floreography is King Charles's choice of funeral wreath for his mother, the late queen. To the uninformed, the wreath stood alone as a symbol of familial grief, its meaning derived from its presence, not its substance. Hmm. But it was only by analyzing the stems that the breadth of his emotions could be better understood. Myrtle for love and prosperity, paired with English oak to represent strength. Hmm. How floreography influences our decisions has enabled florists like Blue and Wild to make some fascinating observations. For one, they have recorded that 29% of people select their blooms based on bouquet color, with red being the most popular choice. The color of passion, red is universally recognized as an expression of love. Pink, however, has a myriad of meanings depending on where you live. In Thailand, it's symbolic of trust, while in Japan, it's believed to be a symbol of good health. In a single hue, there's a variety of symbolism, yet this only begins to scratch the surface of floreography. Take the sweet pea, a summertime flower that comes in an array of colors, but whose meaning remains the same, as a token of thanks. In the Victorian era, sweet peas were a go-to gift when thanking a host for a wonderful time. If paired with zinnias, a flower that signifies everlasting friendship, your bouquet would help differentiate between casual acquaintance and dear friend. But 
Like everything in this world, for a good there is a bad, with some flowers used to represent negative feelings toward the recipient. <laughs> you might think yellow carnations are beautiful, but they have a long history of being a symbol for disdain. <gasps> also best to avoid is the buttercup, its yellow petals synonymous with childishness. And it was long considered inauspicious to place red and white plants together with the belief that this combination foretold death still held by some. Huh. Oh, snap! Valentine's Day better watch out! Yeah, seriously. The significance of all these codes and connections is explored in An Illustrated Guide to the Victorian Language of Flowers by floriography expert Jessica Rue. Flower meanings were taken from literature, mythology, religion, medieval legend, and even the shapes of the blooms themselves. Often, florists would invent symbolism to accompany new additions to their inventory, and occasionally flowers had different meanings depending on the location and time. Rue says, I wouldn't say we're living in a similar repressed world of etiquette today, but I do think we present only certain sides of ourselves online. The Victorian language of flowers emerged at a time when etiquette discouraged open and flagrant displays of emotion. <laughs> Although the practice filtered through the social classes, it was primarily popular with women of the privileged classes, a demographic that, while in a position of financial privilege, was still regarded as inferior to its male counterpart. <laughs> in, a time, <laughs> in a time when women were not encouraged to be outspoken, these floral accessories allowed them to communicate with their peers, offering a means for them to speak out without impeding their societal status. God, I would give anything for like a floriography to emoji direct translation account. <laughs> like if I wanted to send a peach emoji, but I wanted to be a little bit more classy, what's the flower for that? <laughs> yeah, just have to pair it with a, a daisy or something. You right, know, right. Lighten up the, that peach. <laughs> well, I think my takeaway here is I would not do well in the Victorian era. Because <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. I'm always very against passive aggressive communication. And I get if you're talking about a society where women aren't allowed to communicate, mm -hmm. this is all they've got. And it's fairly ironic as well that now women have a reputation for never saying what they mean. And it's like, well, maybe it's because you didn't let women <laughs> say what they meant for a couple hundred years. <laughs> but I also like even emojis I don't like because I have to search for them. I'm like, I know yeah. the word. The word fire comes to mind immediately. If I want to find the fire mm -hmm. picture in the 800 pictures I'm now offered, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm lazy. Yeah, nothing <laughs> makes me feel more Web 1.0 than receiving a string of emojis and being expected to suss out the actual sentence. Like, mm. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> nope. I, I, I passed the age cut off. That's incomprehensible to me now. Right, right. Well, something interesting, too, on the topic of, you know, meanings changing is that for Zoomers, a lot of the default emojis that are included now in things like Facebook and message reacts, whatnot, you know, thumbs up, laughing, mm -hmm. are now uncool because oh, yeah. they are, you know, just so widespread and mainstream. And a lot of Zoomers even feel that the thumbs up is often sarcastic. I love yeah. how that whole exposure about the thumbs up not being cool anymore essentially stemmed from a single Reddit comment. Comment, mm -hmm. And it became oh, news. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but there, I mean, that's not to say that that isn't an isolated opinion either. Well, and there's definitely like a similar example is apparently to just respond with the letter K as as an OK. K, mm -hmm. I think, is now considered pretty sarcastic and rude. Like I know people who <laughs> respond with KK. Because if you put two Ks, it's cuter. It's like, okay, okay, you know, and I'm like, none of that is okay. Use a sentence. Like, <laughs> put all the words in and then everyone will know what you mean. But I'm old. Like you said, we're all past the age cutoff. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> well, that being said, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, in the common theme on this podcast of computers are ruining our lives, we have this one from ProPublica titled Rent Going Up. 
one company's algorithm could be why. Ooh. Yeah. So the company is called RealPage, and the algorithm they're talking about here is a product called YieldStar, which basically analyzes the rent data in your area and tells landlords exactly where to set their own rent prices in order to maximize income. And, you know, conceptually, this seems like it should be an okay thing, right? They're just looking at the local market the same way human landlords have done throughout history, the same way all merchants have done for all products, really, and Mm -hmm. setting their prices in the right place to keep their business competitive. But, of course, like all data analytics, the computers are better at recognizing patterns than people are, and landlords who use YieldStar are averaging around 4.8% better income than those who don't. And the company freely admits that one of the reasons it does so well is because it pushes its users towards some counterintuitive choices. For example, it's always been taken as a given in the rental industry that you don't want empty units, right? If no one's renting your apartment, that's lost money. So if you have too many empty units, that means you need to lower your prices so more people move in. But YieldStar will often say no. Instead of shooting for 98% capacity, you should instead shoot for 94% capacity at a higher price. Because the extra money makes up for the empty units and you'll have a higher total profit in the end. Mm-hmm. YieldStar also encourages landlords to ruthlessly follow a rising market as fast as possible, which most human beings will hesitate to do. So generally, mm-hmm. a 10% hike over the previous year's rent is considered the absolute maximum because every percentage point makes it more likely that your existing tenants will move out. And again, people mm-hmm. have that natural assumption that an empty property is worse than an underpriced property. But YieldStar will often tell its users that they can safely increase the rent in a hot market as much as 30 to 40 percent in a single year, because even if the tenants leave, someone else will move in soon enough. And in the real world, people who aren't sociopaths do tend to feel bad about this kind of behavior. You know, your tenants are real people and you're upending their lives by forcing them out just so you can make more money with a different tenant. But the algorithm's developers say, well, that's exactly why our system works better than the old way of doing it. Principal scientist at the company Jeffrey Roper said, quote, there's way too much empathy going on here. (laughs) And all that obviously sounds pretty not great, but here's where the real problem comes in. As companies merge and expand, the rental industry has become more and more monolithic. In one hot zip code in Seattle, for example, more than 70 percent of rental units are controlled by just 10 companies and all 10 of them use YieldStar. The oligarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And because the algorithm's motivation is to always raise prices whenever you can, you get this spiraling upward effect where YieldStar Mm -hmm. is raising rents everywhere in order to justify raising rents everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you step back and look at the big picture of a marketplace run entirely by one program, you start to realize that this looks more and more like collusion, which is completely illegal. So in 2017, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Maureen Olhausen, said the best way to look at it was to replace the word algorithm with a guy named Bob. Because if a guy named Bob were going back and forth between all the landlords and helping them share information in order to raise prices, that would clearly be a case of price fixing. In some cases, RealPage even goes beyond this indirect, technically our hands are clean kind of mentality because they also have message boards for their users. And they actively encourage them to communicate and cooperate with one another. (laughs) You mean to collude with one another, right? exactly. (laughs) And a lot of people are complaining about this. And the FTC has sort of sent over a few warning shots. But so far, they've been fairly toothless. Like in 2018, RealPage was fined $3 million. But it was only because their tenant screening product supposedly didn't keep personal data secure enough. 
And frankly, $3 million just isn't that much to a company like RealPage, which currently has more than 31,000 customers who collectively control the majority of the rental market in the U.S. I got feels, y'all. This is... Mm. And of course, RealPage claims that reverse market forces do push back on their algorithm, you know, because at some point... Everybody just leaves town and no one will rent your overpriced <laughs> yeah, apartment. At some point, you will have a crash because essentially what you're creating is a runaway bubble, is right. what they're saying. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and experts say that in actuality, housing is now a key driver of inflation with workers demanding higher salaries in order to pay their higher rents. And they say that Yieldstar is, in fact, a big part of that acceleration. Sure. According to Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the definition of a cost burdened household is one that spends more than 30% of their income on housing. And as of 2019, that included nearly half of all renters. And, you know, I, I don't know what to do about this. Like, maybe this is me just giving up. Like, maybe I should have more fight left in me than I do. But I honestly think that the only realistic way out of this is to have a similar algorithm working for the tenants. You know, like, give me a program that tells me exactly where the best apartment deal is and lets me know when I can suddenly demand a decrease in my rent because now I have that inside information that my apartment complex is operating at 93% capacity today and they can't yeah. afford to lose me right now. To me, it's this like, is just like high, like hit trading, basically, where mm -hmm. it's always going to have an institutional advantage. It's demonstrated by what's already been happening. There's not enough money in offering tenants their own way. And if there is, they're going to get bought out by institutional right. buyers for a merger later. Look at Robinhood, right? I mean, no matter how they try to spin it as trying to be for you, it's always, yeah, <laughs> I'm so frustrated because this makes perfect sense in terms of inflation. And we've got a lot of people on, you know, FinCon Twitter that are talking about the Fed specifically wanting to suppress wages to deal with inflation without looking at the, Ugh. you know, even if you weren't using yield star in the real estate market, all companies everywhere have taken advantage of this to hike up prices just to keep on their economic pace for shareholders and the economic system and everything. And mm -hmm. oh, y'all know how I feel about capitalism. I'm tired. Well, it's like, like you said, things start out being for tenants, but then they end up being used yeah. for something else anyway. So mm -hmm. even if you had that program, like HR departments used to be advocates for the employees, yeah. and now they're yeah. 100% there to protect mm -hmm. the company. Mm -hmm. So like, you got to fight fire with fire. But I guess that may or may not mean arson, if that's what it comes to. <laughs> <laughs> the long road that's available to us is continuing to vote in each and every election cycle. So we have representatives who are actually looking out for us. Mm -hmm. Get that vote in all, all throughout your life. It's hygiene, y'all. <laughs> right. Next link. Next link. All right, let's take a detour into another scientific realm. We're coming from Quantum Magazine today, and we're talking about how machine learning highlights a hidden order in scents. And we're talking about huh. olfactory scents, fragrances, smells, and specifically efforts to build a better digital nose suggests that our perception of sense reflects both the structure of aromatic molecules and the metabolic processes that make them. So this is a very subtle but kind of amazing and groundbreaking study, which thematically fits in with our sense of smell, right? It's one of the oldest and least understood senses that we have, right? Mm. And we're starting off the article with Alex Wilchko. He began collecting perfumes as a teenager. He now works as an olfactory neuroscientist for Google Research's brain team. 
And sometimes he looked almost longingly at colleagues studying other senses because, you know, they have these beautiful <laughs> intellectual structures, these cathedrals of knowledge, especially when it comes to the visual and auditory world. But compared to olfaction, it's pretty thin. He's like, I just have noses. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not only that, but think about what we know about sight. We've got cones and rods. Mm -hmm. We know how it's organized in terms of how our brain responds to it. And same for audio. We can visualize these sound waves. We understand the process of how it hits our ear and we can manipulate it in that way. But olfactory is still way behind. But yeah. recent work by Wilchko and his colleagues is helping to change that. So they posted a paper in a preprint server in July where they described using machine learning to tackle a long-standing challenge in olfactory science. And their findings significantly improved researchers' ability to compute the smell of a molecule from its structure. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. When COVID really started, I got way into perfume as a hobby. And it started off mm -hmm. as like, you know, I need to make sure I can still smell. I don't have COVID. But then it turned into like mood regulation because I'm at home all the time and no one's going to be offended by my perfume. So I really started <laughs> getting into it. And part of what attracts me so much to fragrance is how they're described. because. They tell a story. And what this science is telling us is our nose can tell part of that story. So, mm. okay, when you inhale a whiff of your morning coffee, you're getting 800 different types of molecules traveling to your smell receptors. And from the complexity of this rich chemical portrait, our brains synthesize an overall perception. And researchers have found it exceptionally difficult to predict what even a single molecule will smell like to us humans. Our noses have about 400 different receptors for detecting the chemical makeup of the world around us, but it's still not clear how combinations of odor inputs map onto our perceptions of fragrances as sweet or musky, disgusting, etc. So they decided to make this iconic structure to scent problem the focus of a dream challenge, which is something IBM does. And this was in, back in, I think, 2015. It was a computer crowdsourcing competition where teams competed to build models that could predict a molecule's odor from its structure. But even the best models couldn't explain everything. Peppered throughout the data were these pesky, irregular cases that just resisted prediction. And then sometimes a tiny tweak to a molecule's chemical structure would yield a completely new odor. So to try to explain these irregular cases, Wilchko and his team considered the requirements that evolution might have levied on our senses. So think about it this way. Each of our senses has been fine-tuned over millions of years to detect the most salient range of stimuli. So his hypothesis was simple. Maybe chemicals that smell similar are not just chemically related, but biologically related as well. So to test huh. the idea, they needed a map of metabolic reactions that occur in nature. Fortunately, scientists in the field of metabolomics had already constructed a large database that outlined these natural chemical relationships and the enzymes that precipitate them. So with this data, the researchers could pick two odorous molecules and calculate how many enzymatic reactions it would take to convert one to the other. And to compare, they also needed a computer model that could quantify how various odorous molecules smell to humans. So to that end, Wiltschko's team had been refining a neural network model called the Principal Odor Map <laughs> that built on the findings of the 2015 Dream Competition. And this map is like a cloud of 5,000 points, each representing one molecule's sense. And the points for molecules that smell similar are clustered together, and the ones that smell very different are far apart. And the cloud is much more than 3D. It basically holds 256 dimensions of information. Huh. Only advanced computing tools can grapple with its structure. 
And so what the researchers did is they looked for corresponding relationships within the two data sources. They sampled 50 pairs of molecules and found that chemicals that were closer on the metabolism map also tended to be closer on the scent map, even if they had very different structures. It's like it smells like what it does for us, not what it is. Exactly. It's like the story of that molecule, if you will, that we're also sensing. So the next frontier of olfactory neuroscience will probably involve the odors of mixtures instead of just individual molecules based on the findings that we have here, right? Because in real life, we very rarely inhale just one chemical at a time. Well, I think it's very clever that they said, "Okay, we're just going to say which things smell similar to each other and not get people to try to describe how it smells. Because people Mm. smell things differently. Mm -hmm. I may think this perfume smells great and someone else is like, this is making me nauseous. It's so gross. (laughs) Yep. It's about what does it match and how did it get there? Mm -hmm. I think Wilchko, how he closes the article, he basically says this project has already changed how he thinks about his lifelong passion. Because when you experience a smell, you are perceiving parts of another living thing. I just think that's really beautiful. I feel more connected to life that way. So beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they say that when you're smelling something, you know, it, it is actually in your nose. Like you're not, it's not just some vapor that comes off of it. It's the mm-hmm. thing. It is the thing that right. is diffused into the air. So That's right. So if you smell poop, you have poop in your nose. <laughs> just like That is where I learned that, yes. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He who smelt it dealt it. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com. It's titled, Extremely Powerful Gamma Ray Burst Sweeps Across Earth. And don't worry, the fact that we're not dead means it's fine. Yay! Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Because ordinarily, those things would just kill you straight out, cause a mass extinction event, all that, very rare. But in this scenario, it was fine. So, yay. We woke up this morning. Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. Gamma ray bursts, or GRBs, are among the most energetic explosions since the Big Bang, and now astronomers have detected the most powerful one yet. A beam of high-energy radiation up to 18 times more powerful than the previous record swept over Earth last weekend. The signal, designated GRB 221009A, was detected on October 9th, although the explosion itself occurred 1.9 billion years ago. It came from the direction of the constellation Sagitta and was visible to telescopes for more than 10 hours, making it one of the longest-lasting GRBs detected. The energy of these events is usually measured in giga-electron volts, GeV, but a few have been recorded with energies of about 1 tera-electron volt, and this new event may have reached a record-breaking 18 TeV, marking the first detection of a GRB with energies above 10 TeV. Wow. <laughs> the data will need to be verified by other teams before GRB 221009A can earn its place in the record books. Regardless, this gamma ray burst remains one of the most energetic and brightest ever detected, largely because it's relatively nearby. While 1.9 billion light years may not sound very close, most others are detected several billion light years or more away. While it's still uncertain exactly what caused the GRB, the prime suspect is a massive star collapsing into a black hole at the end of its life. It's worth noting that despite its intensity and proximity, this GRB is harmless to Earth. It's thought that were one to go off within our Milky Way, and its beam just so happened to be pointing directly at Earth, it could cause a mass extinction. Thankfully, though, GRBs are thought to be relatively rare events, with only a few occurring per galaxy per million years, and an even smaller percentage of those would fire in Earth's exact direction. 
Nonetheless, that doesn't make me feel better about having lived through no. one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess they're saying it grazed us as opposed to hitting us directly, but it feels like surely there's going to be some side effects. We just haven't picked up on them yet. Yeah, perhaps. And apparently a lot of it has to do with the distance. And I imagine, you know, there's a fall off effect and something mm. to do with Earth's atmosphere shielding us a little bit. But uh, who knows? You know, that was only nine days ago. So let's keep watching for the next hundred years and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, if we all get cancer, I think we know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> or superpowers, you know? Let's let's think of Right. Like, yes. Yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Right? Keep it positive. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it was just a short one, but I thought that was notable to have the, you know, few million years experience happen right now in this unprecedented time. <laughs> But I mean, at least we know it happened in the past. Like if they had warned us it was coming, everybody yeah. would have lost their minds trying to predict what would happen. Now they're just like, oh, by the way, you didn't die. So whatever. Like it's in the past. <laughs> yeah. And the messed yeah. up thing about gamma rays is that I don't think you can really predict them because they move that mm. fast. And so if there is a mass extinction event from one, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah there's we're not nothing know. we can yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, everyone loves an anthropomorphized robot. And mm -hmm. this next article from CNN is about Alvin the Submersible, which is allowing humans to dive deeper into the world's ocean than ever before. Mm. And there's a decent chance you've actually seen a picture or a video of Alvin before because this was the same submersible that was used to explore the wreckage of the Titanic after it was discovered in 1986. Like, did y'all see any of those documentaries where they're like, we're mm -hmm. going down there, we've mm -hmm. got this little submarine. It's like the round little boobly thing, right? Well, it was, but oh. now it's gotten an upgrade. Hey. So, yeah. So Alvin is named after Alan Vine, a physicist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution who championed the idea of using submersibles to conduct science in otherwise inaccessible places. Alvin first went into service all the way back in 1964. And since then, it has received three major technological upgrades, including this latest one, which allows it to reach a new record depth of four miles underwater with passengers. Whoa. Wow. So this means that 99% of the ocean floor is now accessible to scientists, including, <gasps> for example, the BB hydrothermal vent field just south of the Cayman Islands, where two tectonic plates are separating at about a half inch per year. And the water nearby becomes heated to 750 degrees Fahrenheit as it interacts with magma-heated rocks inside the crevice. And we have had some unmanned vehicles that can go pretty deep. But Anna Michelle, an associate scientist at Woods Hole, who was part of a team that took biological and chemical samples from BB and other spots along the Puerto Rico Trench this past summer, she says there's just no substitute for sending a real person down there to make observations and run experiments. So over the years, Alvin has taken more than 3,000 passengers on more than 5,000 dives. And aside from making huge contributions to science, it also once helped the Navy locate a missing hydrogen bomb from World War II. Oh! And it also took scientists to the seafloor underneath the Deepwater Horizon oil spill of 2010. So it can be used for basically anything underwater. As long as you can pay for it. Like, let's mine yes. the ocean floor of rare minerals. What could possibly yeah. go wrong? Here, I'll pay for the expedition. <laughs> and it's also a little, like, ship of Theseus where it's like, I mean, after at some point it's not Alvin anymore, but they keep just calling the submersible that they have Alvin. So it's still Alvin, I guess. <laughs> but the recent upgrade took 18 months of overhauling. And Oof. in addition to the new depth rating, Alvin now boasts a 4K imaging system, a new hydraulic manipulator arm, 
more powerful thrusters, new motor controllers, and an integrated command and control system. It also weighs a lot more than you'd think, clocking in at 43,000 pounds. But of course, it's in the water all the time, so that doesn't matter as much. And they do have a picture if you want to see it. It's red and white now. It looks like a little stubby baby submarine. It only holds three (laughs) people. So right now, Alvin is making about 100 dives per year. And scientists who want to use it for their research have to submit proposals to reserve time on the submersible. That being said, it is pretty much open to anyone with a good proposal or, as Michelle puts it, There's a new generation waiting to use the sub, and to them we say, Alvin is ready. Where do you want to go? So it's very heartwarming. It's cute. It's a little submersible. I personally would not want to go down into it because I have a fear of being crushed by four miles of water. Like just the, the idea of a leak, I don't know. It seems very uncomfortable to me to be down there. But I guess for scientists who are like, this is, I've never seen a hydrothermal vent, you know, and you see one in person and it's an awesome I would love, experience. I would, if I could afford to, I would totally go on one of those trips. I don't know if it's because I am slightly agoraphobic and find it comforting to be in like a super small space while we explore hmm. like a world within a world here. But, yeah, you know, if it's not the gamma rays, it's going to be all that water crushing us underneath, right? That's right. <laughs> see something pretty before you go, at least. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include how microwave radar brought direct phone calls to millions. How can we know if food additives are safe and ancient eel migration mystery unraveled? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.